Delighted to say we're joined by broadcasting royalty on the phone line, Mr. Peter Collins of RTE. Peter, welcome on the Irish F1 show. Great to have you. Uh, thank you very much, Kev. I've never received uh, that particular intro before, but uh, I'll take it because I've been around a while, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we're absolutely delighted to, to, to have you on board, Peter. It's uh, a real pleasure, honestly. And um, I suppose the first thing we would ask is, like, when you think of Formula 1, doesn't matter what it is. If someone mentions four and one to Peter Collins, what does what does Peter Collins think of? Uh, well, the first thing I think of, obviously, Kevin, is the ten years that uh, I spent uh, covering Formula One for RTV because it just throws up a, a myriad of great memories. And uh, and I remember distinctly thinking at the time during that period, you know, we were extremely fortunate to have an Irish-owned team in Formula One. In the Jordan Grand Prix team. I mean, that in itself was remarkable. And we genuinely, I want to say we, the likes of uh, David Kennedy, who was my co-comment, Declan Quigley, our pit lane reporter, and our producer, Michael Carroll. I mean, we did appreciate that this, uh, you know, was possibly a one-off, that it may never happen again, certainly in our lifetimes, that we'd have a, a Formula One team, from an Irish point of view, in, in, in the sport, you know. So we really appreciated it. And then, I suppose, I, I begin to focus in on the high points for Jordan. Many of them, of course, came in the, in the 1999 season, you know, when they did so well. And Heinz Harald Frenzen did so well coming third in the World Championship. I mean, that was a remarkable achievement for what was essentially a privateer team, you know, something that probably doesn't even exist in, in Formula One these days. And uh, and if I focus even further, I, I go to the uh, 1998 Belgian Grand Prix where Jordan scored his first ever win through uh, Damon Hill and Ralph Schumacher, also finished on the podium that day. I mean, that was an absolutely remarkable day because I remember the race starting in torrential rain and there was, uh, was uh, a 14-car pileup on, on the first lap and, uh, you know, trying to call that and, uh, you know, do so relatively successfully and to see the Jordan cars make it through the carnage and uh, line up on the grid once again. Well, it was a brilliant, brilliant day, you know, and luckily nobody was injured in the in the particular incident, but, uh, and they all had spare cars at the time, so we basically had a full grade going racing once again, and for George to go on top on that particular day was absolutely fantastic. So they're the sort of mem memories it throws up for me. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I suppose in terms of our, our, uh, our TV screens and indeed maybe radio stations for those of a certain vintage, you don't need any introduction, and you will largely be associated, even though you're, you're big into what he called it, the soccer side of things in more recent times. But I think a lot of your association to many people is is F1. But what many people don't realise is, you know, there was quite some time spent in other sports and indeed in music prior to you getting involved in F1. So maybe talk us through that time. Uh, sure, there was. I mean, initially, I suppose I got my first uh, national broadcasting break with uh, Radio 2, 2FM, 2FM as it is today. And uh, initially as a standby presenter, and then I got a 10-minute time slot uh, every fortnight, once a fortnight, uh, from the Galway studios. I'm originally from Westport and Mayo, so uh, it wasn't a big trek for me down to Galway. But, but that, was, that was a good break. And from that then, you know, I got a bit of on-air exposure. And shortly afterwards, got a couple of uh, weekend shows uh, on Radio 2, as I said, as it was. And I suppose I wasn't too long with that before I started dabbling in television through, you know, various opportunities came my way and I took them, you know, a little bit of continuity here and there. And then uh, I got a chance to audition for a sports program uh, through the sports department. They asked me to audition for, it was a coverage of Aussie Rules at the time. So, so that was my first, I suppose, program break. And then I moved to the newsroom as a sports reporter for five years. And I suppose that was from 1990 to 1995. A good time, I suppose, to be uh, involved in sports coverage because in many ways it was in its infancy on news. Uh, you know, news wasn't renowned for giving sports uh, serious coverage, but it had begun two or three years earlier with Erwin Jones and the late Colin Murray. Uh, they started covering sports and then I became involved and uh, did that for five years before I got my break in the sports department proper. Yeah, and I suppose during that time we're talking about World Cups, we're talking about Olympics and, you know, post-match interviews and, and different things like that. Uh, one of the most, uh, I suppose, intimidating you may have come up uh, across, I suppose, and you'll confirm that for us, it's not me putting words in your mouth, Mr. Jack Chardon, I'd say they were interesting exchanges. Yeah, I had some very interesting exchanges with Jack because uh, I suppose one of my key roles during that time in the uh, newsroom was the uh, pre- and post-match interviews. 
And uh, yeah, Jack at times could be uh, could be challenging. I remember after the uh, the Mexico game, the defeat against Mexico at the nineteen ninety four World Cup in the United States, and uh, I said to Jack after the match, I said, you know, I said uh, both Dennis Irwin and Terry Feeling. I said, I picked up second yellow cards. What are you going to do? And he kind of looked at me. His uh, nostrils flared and his eyes widened. And he said, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Picked all the bloody players. What do you think I'm going to do? And he marched off into the distance. And I said, well, that's not that answer the question. <laughs> but I uh, had a few exchanges like that with, with Jack. But, but overall, I mean, I really admired him as a manager. And uh, he was probably the best storyteller I've ever come across in sport. Uh, but, you know, cross him on a bad day. And you were in trouble, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are probably, um, I suppose, I, I won't say sobering lessons, but definitely lessons you learn in time that as a post-match reporter, that you kind of park that emotion and realize that what they're reacting to or the way they're reacting is not really your problem because you're there to do the job and extract the information. And the earlier you can get to someone after a game or after a race, you know, the likelihood is you'll probably get more... I suppose, raw content because they haven't had time to maybe calm themselves down. And it sounds like you're taking, I suppose, or being an opportunist, but really that's the name of the game and it's all a part of it too, isn't it? It is really, Ken. You know, I mean, it's difficult for both the reporter and indeed uh, the person who's there answering the questions. And I have uh, sympathy for for both sides, you know, because uh, and possibly even more so nowadays than then. You know, now sort of people are looking for sort of instant sort of reaction to everything, you know. And I think some questions are hard to answer because uh, managers or players or whatever the case may be, they really haven't had time to process exactly what, what has gone on. And yet there is an expectation of them and indeed of, of the reporter to give an accurate summation of what has gone on. I think sometimes it's, it's unfair. But having said that, you know, I mean, part of what we do is entertainment. I think for, for people at home, they want to hear from the manager. They want to hear from the players. And uh, a lot of questions have to be asked. Yeah, simple as that. And if you're if you don't ask them, you're not you're not doing your job. So in terms of the F one coverage, then, so did RTE go looking for F one, or did F one go looking for RTE? Uh, RTE went looking for uh, Formula One, and our then head of sports, Tim O'Connor, uh, probably prompted by a guy called Michael O'Carroll. Michael was the guy who drove the motorsport coverage, and there was quite a lot of it on RTE at the time. I mean, we used to cover things like the Leinster Trophy meeting. We used to cover the Phoenix Park races. We used to cover um, the Circuit of Ireland rally. And all that was driven by a great man, Michael O'Carroll, who uh, eventually became the Formula One producer. But I think he probably prompted Tim O'Connor and said, look, there's an Irish team in Formula One. We really should be across this. It's a blue band event. You know, uh, let's try and do a deal. And, I, and in fairness to Tim, he went and he did a very good deal with Bernie Eccleston. Um, and at that time as well, I realized that when I watched the, um, the Bernie Eccleston documentary, which was released recently called Lucky, it's a remarkable sort of uh, history through Bernie's eyes of Formula One right from 1950 onwards. And uh, he basically said in and around that time, he had decided to make a concerted effort to get Formula One onto all the major terrestrial broadcasters to increase its, its global profile. And so I suppose uh, Tim went looking for that deal at an appropriate time. Bernie wanted to spread the Formula One word across the globe. And Ireland was another territory. It was another country. And as I always said to people, you know, we may be a small country, but when you list off countries, we're exactly the same as everybody else. You know, you say it's in France, it's in Germany, it's in Spain, it's in Ireland, it's in the United States, it's in Argentina, it's in Brazil. So I always felt we were every bit as significant as anybody else, except obviously carrying a slightly smaller audience, you know. Yeah, and Michael O'Carroll is held in such high esteem, even to this day, you hear Plum Tyndall regularly speaking about the influence he had in the RPM programmes too, which would be another thing. I know you mentioned the Circuit of Ireland, but the actual magazine-type programme, which has caused huge debate in, in rally circles, actually, in the past couple of years, whether streaming is the best route, whether you know TV programmes are. My own opinion would be that they can both coexist, and it would be fantastic that you know we, yeah. we, hit, we hit all platforms. But I suppose going back to you then and uh you know getting involved in in 1995 so correct me if i'm wrong but uh you obviously had quite a grow for f1 and having i suppose taken that into consideration was was there still an element of surprise whenever you get i suppose the uh the opportunity to go in front of this 
Oh, on my part, total surprise. Now, I mean, uh, now I, I grew up loving the Formula One because, uh, like, my dad was involved in the car business, so I had a natural leaning towards uh, cars and all things uh, motorsports and indeed speed. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I can clearly remember, you know, sort of following Mario Andretti for some reason. Don't ask me what reason it was. You know, maybe he's with the most exotic name and, and possibly, you know, around the time he was winning the World Championship that I really started developing an interest in, in Formula One. But it continued right through uh, into my sports career. And when I started in the newsroom as a sports reporter, was a running joke in the newsroom. Was it now? Now to news of sport here's Peter Collins, and then they say jokingly, "Ah, yeah, first of Formula One," which wasn't the case, obviously. Although when it came to a Grand Prix weekend uh, from 1991 onwards, when we had Jordan involved, it probably was the case. So uh, Formula One <laughs> is a uh, is a uh, sort of superseded uh, even GAA and football and greater than everything else. <laughs> so yeah, maybe editorially it wasn't the correct decision, but. I, I wasn't there front and centre because I thought what Jordan were doing was quite remarkable, you know. Yeah. Uh, from your point of view then, so you're launched straight into um, anchoring the, the coverage for, for F1, but how many opportunities of any sporting, not sporting event, sorry, but more sport event would you have got prior to this? Like, uh, Well, not many really. I mean, we did, uh, obviously we did the odd thing around Mondello, uh, you know, because I worked on a preview program on a Friday night and I did some stuff for Sports Stadium. I also did stuff for, for news, you know, in terms of feature reports on various drivers and things like that. But, but that, I suppose, would have been about it. And, and I had attended a couple of Grand Prix uh, in a sort of working stroke guest capacity. So, um, and then I think uh, Tim decided at the time, you know, well, sort of, I, my broadcasting career was still in, in its infancy, so he decided, well, we're getting into this thing at the start. I want somebody fresh. I want somebody new. And there, uh, while there were a couple of other candidates that w- would have been considered at the time, and you mentioned uh, Plum Tyndall, obviously, who was a, a great uh, broadcaster in terms of sport, uh, motorsport coverage here in Ireland, and uh, Brian Chute as well would have also been in the frame. But I think Tim decided, I want somebody new, and he decided to give me a chance, but little did I realize that it really was only a chance because our first Grand Prix was in Brazil. So we were packed off to Brazil. We had auditioned for a co-commentator and David Kennedy got that job. We were packed off to Brazil. We did the Brazilian Grand Prix, which was uh, rain delayed at the start, but we had prepared ourselves to within an inch of our lives. I think the race could have been 24 hours long and we, we would have had something to say because we had every helmet and every <laughs> driver's history and team history uh, changes around our commentary box in Brazil. But uh, we arrived back in Brazil anyway, and on my desk in the uh, sports department were the tickets to go to Argentina. I remember saying to Tim O'Connor, I was like, well, surely, I mean, it would have made total sense for us to go from Brazil just on to Argentina, not this trek back and back out again. He said, oh, yeah, he said, in the normal scheme of things, he said, that would have been the thing to do. He said, but had you made a mess of the Brazilian Grand Prix, he said, you were never going to do another. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, I was live auditioned, but I wrote, thankfully, at the time, and, and uh, our, tour, our tour for 10 years started from that point on. Yeah, and it's mad just in that single moment, like in that, literally, that story, how things could have being so different and if there's any lesson to be gotten that for any aspiring broadcaster or anyone in media it's have your homework done and peter you'd be surprised how many people would would fail to do that and i mean when you consider what you're doing and the length of time you could have between one incident and another to fill yeah. uh you know it is it is something that you could get cut out on very quickly and i think people will know straight away a lot of people will know if you're bluffing or not so i mean it's mad you think of things happening for a reason and stuff like that like, if that hadn't happened and you weren't prepared, that was probably the most standout thing from an editorial point of view that made them think, yeah. wow, look, well, this guy was prepared. He, he had his homework done. He was able to fill the gap. That can't have been easy. Yeah, this is the right guy. Like, that's just so important now in hindsight, isn't it? Well, it's hugely important. And uh, as, you, as you know, Kev, I mean, we're, we're all Formula One fans here, but uh, there are times where races can be very, very processional. And there aren't sort of uh, overtaking maneuvers taking place on every single lap that you can describe with great excitement and enthusiasm. I mean, that doesn't happen in Formula One all the time, even to this day. And I mean, they spend their time wondering how they can get the cars to race closer. <laughs> but the plans don't always work. So, so you really have to have a lot of homework done. And, you know, it's not just about knowing about the drive. It's not just known about the team owners. You know, I mean, 
you have to sort of speak to engineers and you have to get some sort of handle and we're not technical experts by any stretch of the imagination because formula one is so technical but you have to have a handle on why certain cars are working you know why improvements have been made from practice through qualifying through race day and impart that information then to the viewer and uh, yeah hugely important to do your homework but, uh, but I, i've always said uh, for a good race you might only use 15 percent of your your homework or your preparation but on a bad race you could use up to 75% of your preparation, you know. So you have to have it done, but there isn't really a choice. And as it applies to, uh, not, not just Formula 1, it applies to anything you're doing. You know, the vast majority of your time in this business is spent preparing for your next broadcast. And the broadcast is relatively, is relatively short, we say, compared to your normal work and week. You know, you might only be on air for, let's say, three hours for a match or three hours for a race. But, uh, you know, you, you probably spent, you know, the bones of three full working days preparing for that broadcast. And that's, that's kind of normal. And when it comes to the major championships, then when you spend months, you spend months just getting your prep at various times, getting your prep together for Olympics and World Cups. It's, it's an ongoing process. But uh, I suppose if you love sport, it's not the hardest thing in the world to do because you'd probably be looking up a lot of this stuff anyway. You know? Yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And I'm so glad you've said that because it's something that, you know, it's not that I've had to explain it to people, but you kind of would like people to realize and appreciate that maybe the hour that you're on air for is the enjoyable part, the easy part, and everything else is yeah. is absolute hardship and chaos at times. But you mentioned, you know, the homework in, in particular, like having, having that done, a lot of that is timeless then as well. So you'll use some and you might actually be able to use some later on. So it's worth putting in that bit of additional graph that, you know, we know from race to race things will change, but a certain amount of things won't. And, you know, little facts and figures that you can throw out there. I think that's, that's another little thing that, that people could maybe learn from from listening to the conversation or whatever. But going back to 95 then and Schumacher, right? I mean, uh, I read the, the article with Boz.e recently and I'd love for you to share with our listeners that particular experience or exchange in late 1995 with Mr. Schumacher where you could have been intimidated, but you stood your ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I know the story you're, you're now referring to, all right, yeah. That happened... Uh... It was in AIDA, the Pacific Grand Prix, and I think it was going to be Michael's first opportunity to actually win the World Championship. So the night before, Benetton had arranged a press conference, and Michael O'Carroll said to me, you get to that press conference room early and get a pole position, quite literally. So I got there nice and early, uh, and uh, I literally got the seat directly in front of where Michael would have been sitting for the press conference. Uh, and then gradually the world's media filed in. But I don't know how many were in the room, possibly maybe 150 between cameramen and journalists. It, it, I mean, obviously it was the story. So everybody turned up to hear what Michael had to say ahead of, uh, it was the, the Saturday night. So ahead of the race on Sunday, what Michael was going to say. And, uh, uh, just before he came in, uh, the, Host, the te uh, Japanese television came in and they said, "You've taken our spot." I said, "Well, you know, I was here first, and uh, I had to let on that we were live to Ireland, and I would only ask three or four questions, and then I would let them take the position." And luckily, they let me away with it. Anyway, the, the press conference started, and I opened with my first question, and, and he gave me a fantastic answer. I mean, he was always professional, so you always knew if you got to ask Michael Schumacher a question, he would give you a very professional answer. He didn't mess around, and then. Midway through my second question, I got a tap on my shoulder from the cameraman. And I turned around and he was shaking his head. I thought, what's wrong? And he, he said, my battery is gone. I turned around and Michael Schumacher was looking at me, none too pleased. And he said, you call this professional? <laughs> and I said, I said, my sincere apologies, Michael. I said, we have been filming all day. I said, uh, but that we do hire our, our cameraman from uh, RTL Germany. You know, <laughs> and he looked at me, and he kind of went right. I thought, I, I know what he's thinking. Is this becoming a point scoring exercise or what? And he just put his finger in the air. He said, "Okay." He said, "One one." So, <laughs> and, and it wasn't RT Ireland's fault on this particular occasion. But in fairness, he, he was uh, very gracious about it. Like, well, do you mind if I pick up on that second question again? And considering the sort of uh, media obligations he had at that point, uh, he was 
very professional about it and his second answer was every bit as good as his, as his first, you know. And so, But it was mildly embarrassing for me for a moment in time, it was, yeah, after a bit. <laughs> yeah, and obviously I suppose you did get the opportunity to speak with him a few more times after that. There was one in our turn of the millennium, I remember when he was in Ireland, that you got to have a chat. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the professional side, and we, we would have had Lee McKenzie on this show, obviously, previously, and she'd mentioned literally what you mentioned in terms of the professionalism and how much fun he was then kind of off the off camera or off mic, whatever way you want to put it. So what, you know, what was he actually like? Did you get much experience or time away from that sort of a setting with him? And what would your impressions be on him, both on and off set, was that? Um, no, I mean, in fairness, uh, you know, when you're the world champion and acknowledged as the best and uh, the demands uh, of these guys are immense. So eventually they decide what they do. And uh, Michael sort of didn't get, didn't do a huge amount of media when he was at the top of his game because I suppose he saw it as an unnecessary distraction. We did have the odd occasion to uh, speak with him, you know, uh, not necessarily on camera. And I remember we ended up in a karaoke hut at the Suzuka circuit at the end of one Grand Prix season. And he was, uh, he basically was a uh, sort of uh, master of ceremonies in one of these karaoke hosts that we ended up in. And uh, I have to say, he wasn't the greatest singer, uh, but he certainly knew how to enjoy himself once the season was over, you know. So, I mean, there was a personal side to Michael Schumacher, but you didn't get to see it that often because he was quite private away from uh, the glare of the Formula One media. And I wouldn't say reclusive, but he had his own circle of friends and uh, that's kind of the way it was and that's the way it had to be you know you couldn't go around glad handing everybody who wanted to speak to him because there were just so many people involved you know from a media point of view from a sponsorship point of view i mean the demand made of these guys is immense and probably more so these days i mean you see them having to do all sorts of interviews now pre-posts or practice qualifying the race and honestly i don't know how the drivers in particular find the time of the day to do the amount of stuff they do but i suppose it's part of their commercial obligation these days. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, the other interesting thing, it's on record, and I'll get you to confirm it here again. Uh, you went to literally all these races. It's not something that was yeah. done off tube, yeah? Yeah, we went to every single, every single race, yeah. That's yeah. that's amazing. That Number one, you know, that there was resources to do that. Number two, you got the opportunity to do that. And then the, the last thing, and the most important thing I want to hear about, is obviously you build up the relationship with, you know, whether it's Declan Quigley or with, David Kennedy and later on maybe Gary Anderson. I'm sure there's some uh, some pretty good stories that you may not be able to tell us about, but you might give us some little insight about the enjoyment that you would have had maybe away from work while while being able to go on these trips. And we should point out as well, they're not they're not trips for the crack. You are there and you are working, and it's serious and it is taxing on the body. But there is an opportunity to let the hair down as well, of course. Oh, there certainly is, and I can tell you, Kev, I have a lot more hair then than I do have now. <laughs> and, and I wasn't the first to let it down. I, I can I can assure you of that. But, but in general, I mean, uh, we were invited to a lot of things during that time at Formula One. Uh, but rarely did we attend anything on a Saturday night because it was too close to race day. And you just and I mean, between all the travel and rigging equipment and watching practice, I mean, I mean, stuff starts at a circuit as you probably know. Uh, early in the morning, you know, you could, you'd be there from eight o'clock every morning, Thursday through Sunday, from eight maybe until six, seven, eight o'clock. So that was kind of a standard day. Uh, but there were occasions where you got an opportunity to go out. And I remember we were invited to dinner one night at Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo, and that sort of uh, invitation you simply cannot turn down. And we attended. And what was really interesting was there were there were. I mean, there literally were famous faces right around the restaurants in Hotel de Paris. There was, uh, I remember seeing Mick Hutton there from Simply Red, uh, uh, accompanied by a bevy of beauties, it has to be said. And uh, Mick Jagger was there, as was Sylvester Stallone. And they were at the same table. And the reason Stallone was there, he was researching uh, a movie that was supposed to be about Formula One. It, event, it eventually ended up being about IndyCar. And I don't know whether you've seen this ridiculous motorsport movie you've ever seen because at one stage the car ends up driving upside down. Uh, that's how ridiculous it is. <laughs> now, while it is possible for a Formula 1 car to drive upside down, it would be a nicely designed tunnel for it to achieve that particular feat. But uh, anyway, he was, you know, so you had these famous people all around. And while that was an enjoyable experience, you know, fine, you know, you're in that sort of company. But at the end of the evening, you know, you finish up your dinner, 
you get your cab home and you sort of start going through your notes for the race the following day. But uh, yeah, I mean, we had some remarkable experiences uh, at times where you have to sort of, uh, particularly on the long haul journeys, because uh, you have to wait for flights on the Monday. So very often you try and do something on the Monday and we went down Whitewater Rapids on St. Lawrence River in Montreal. Uh, we went uh, zip lining in Japan. We did, we did, uh, you know, it, it, it was a, a window of opportunity in fairness, you know, especially the likes of David Kennedy. He was always very proactive. Well, let's not waste this time. Let's make the best use of it possible, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I think that's deadly. And I get the feeling this tip of the iceberg stuff as well, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I appreciate there's some things that'll never be left out of the can, and rightly so. And well, uh, okay. the rest will be in the book. Great stuff, great stuff, yeah, yeah. Well, you can give us the exclusive on the book as well whenever that's coming out. But uh, if, it, if it is to come out, that'll be a serious read, by the way. But anyway. Um, well, I've often considered it, but I, I think I'll wait until I hang up the microphone here in RC. Yeah, well, look, uh, there's life in the old dog yet, as the fella said, right? But, um, <laughs> come on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, what do you call it? It all, it all stems from enjoyment, of course. So, but like something that I picked up on there, you mentioned all the, the big names, right? And obviously now, um, as Conor Moore put it recently, a lot of these Formula 1 drivers are now not just Formula 1 drivers, they're TV stars because of Drive to Survive. And yeah. the point I would make is, so whether it's like... Um, I don't know, whether it's Max Verstappen now or whether it's like Sylvester Stallone years ago that you bumped into or whatever, there would be an assumption sometimes that you only come to realise, I think, a little bit later on in life that, um, I don't know if there's that like holier-than-thou aspect or wherever you want to put it, that maybe they're kind of above you or maybe you feel an inferiority complex. Maybe that's just a mindset. But you do realise in time that these are just normal people, the same as kind of you and me or whatever. And if they are acting in a manner which is probably holier than thou, then maybe they're the asshole. Am I, am I right in saying that? Yeah, possibly. Well, you see, well, in many ways, I mean, they are normal people doing extraordinary things. Yeah. And you asked me about Michael Schumacher there a short time ago. I'm often asked the question, you know, what distinguishes the greats, you know, from everybody else? And what I found interviewing people from all walks of uh, sport, as opposed to all walks of life, is that the best guys, even when they're doing an interview, you can actually see the focus uh, in front of you, you know, by listening to what they're saying and an absolute focus and attention to detail. Uh, and it's quite remarkable. It's almost difficult to describe, but you, you do experience something different with the likes of Michael Schumacher, you know, um, and, and it's would have been the same, you know, when, when you watch interviews, even with, we say, Senna, and the Senna movie, you could see it in him as well. This desire to be the best, and uh, nothing else matters, you know. Uh, they have an ability to close pretty much everything else out of their lives when they're uh, at their job in question. And it applies to the best across all sports, you know, not not just motorsports, same in football, same in snooker, same in tennis, and you look at like Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal and uh, Novak Djokovic. I mean, to remain at the top uh, at that level of sport for such a long period of time is, is absolutely remarkable because, I mean, any of us who've uh, taken part in sports and various sports and you realise what it takes just to become good at something, you know, I mean, we all try to get good at golf or tennis or swimming or cycling or whatever it is. And you realize, you know, you're running with the hate face beside, you know, these uh, superstars of world sports. And what it takes to achieve those levels is an absolute and total focus. I know I was off on a, a little bit of a tangent there, Kevin, didn't quite answer the question that you, you posed. But, you know, uh, because I suppose I've had the experience of uh, speaking with a lot of these people, you know, uh, for any aspiring sports person, you know, it has to be total and absolute focus if you're to reach the top mm, yeah absolutely yeah. and i and i agree and like there is a certain aura about some of these people as well beforehand yeah. uh you know yeah. that you may find kind of intimidating as a broadcaster or something or perhaps some would but you just as i say you kind of figure out in time that while their sporting achievements are extraordinary they're a lot of them are quite down to earth as well you know behind it all oh, and yeah. they just want to lead that yeah. normal life don't they they do, you know, and, and you can understand, you know, because of, of the pressures of them, you know, to, first of all, they've got to perform at their sport. And that has to be the priority. That has to be the priority. And then they have all these commitments, commercial commitments to major sponsors. I mean, sometimes I, I know sort of if, if I was in the position 
of uh, a lot of these guys. If I ever attained that level of success as a sports person, I couldn't have dealt with it. Genuinely couldn't have dealt with it, you know, because it's it's painful some of the things they have to do to uh, please sponsors and you know hangers on and things like that. Uh, but you know, again, the good guys managed to sort of compartmentalize that sort of thing as well and handle it. But it can't be easy. It cannot be easy. Yeah, absolutely. So. At the at the top of the interview, you mentioned the Jordan one two and how successful a season nineteen ninety nine was. And not too long ago, I actually sat down and watched a documentary about Jordan in nineteen ninety eight, and things weren't looking great up until Belgium. And it was quite remarkable. And even you know, I'd kind of forgotten what was going on with Ralph Schumacher at the time with Williams kind of head hunting and all the contract yeah. obligations and. We didn't have the benefit of having access to team radio as during those broadcasts. Maybe, maybe you did. Maybe you'll enlighten us on that. But it's certainly afterwards, only by watching these documentaries, you'd realise that Ralph, for a moment, looked like he wasn't going to obey those team orders. Now, I don't know what to do with any knowledge of that kind of at the time, but it was just a magnificent thing and a bizarre thing at the same time, I'm sure, for you to be kind of telling the story on. Yeah, no, it, it was really interesting. And we, we didn't have access to uh, Car Radio or anything like that at the time. Uh, we had uh, Declan was in the pit lane for us at the time, but again, the teams would divulge that sort of information that they were telling uh, Ralph not to overtake Damon, you know. Um, and, and he was quicker, like, Peter. That's yeah. the thing. Sorry to cut across you, like I mean, okay. you know, he 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 was actually quicker for large portions of that. And Damon seemed to make the suggestion to the team rather than the team making it first. And I think that's where the pressure came on. If I'm right or wrong. Uh, well, uh, I don't. I don't. Know, to be very honest with you, Kev, whether it was pressure from Damon, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I read subsequently that it was, but I don't know how true that was because Damon never sort of confirmed it one way or the other. Uh, Ralph was quicker, there was no question about that, but I think ultimately the order came from Eddie, you are not to overtake Damon, and I think that decision was made for a number of reasons. First of all, uh, Damon was a former world champion, Damon was British, so therefore, the amount of column inches his success would generate for Jordan Grand Prix in Britain, you know, where they would be sourcing most of their sponsorship, would be far more significant, or very significant. Uh, it would be still significant had Ralph gone on and won the race, you know. But I think, uh, you know, Eddie was thinking, well, commercially, <laughs> yeah. it's probably better if Damon wins it, you know, and that Ralph will have further opportunities. He's a younger driver. He'll have opportunities down the road. And I think that possibly influenced the decision. But as I said, we weren't aware of that going on during the race. And I mean, we were on the edge of our seats anyway, hoping that they'd hang out because conditions were very treacherous at the back Franco Champ on the day. And you did think as well, also, if Ralph made an overtaken move on Damon and Damon decided to defend, there was always the possibility that they would take each other out of the race and Eddie Jordan just couldn't countenance that. And I think that was possibly the, the reason that Eddie clung to after the race, you know, when people got wind that Ralph did want to overtake and felt he could and he was faster, I think that's the line that Eddie chose because he said, well, there's no way we're going to take a risk of our two guys clashing. And, you know, I can understand that decision. There was so much at stake, so much money at stake as well, you know, because uh, points mean uh, prizes in Formula One and lots of money. Yeah, absolutely. So, having, having commented on that particular race and the way things unfolded, the most infamous probably accident and a start to a race indeed, the gap in between and how everything worked out in terms of, um, you know, Jordan's favour. Is that the most exciting and the proudest race that you've maybe commentated on, best performance-wise as well? Um, And obviously afterwards then, how difficult was it to maybe get a hold of people that are directly involved with Jordan? We know obviously the Irish connection, but because they'd won, did they recognise that fact? Was it still as easy or maybe as accessible to get access to them, consider what had happened? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, on that point, Kevin, uh, it's, yeah, I mean, Jordan was very much aware that, uh, you know, of, of his obligations to Ireland and also he had a desire for his story and the team's story to be documented in Ireland. So the team, I have to say, were always extremely uh, cooperative with RTE. We would never have any complaints on that on that front whatsoever. And and after that um, Belgian Grand Prix win, uh, you know the press officer did have David Hillsborough and uh, did have Ralph Schumacher, did have Eddie Jordan. Uh, you know they knew 
that you know, Irish TV were going to be there. I mean, BBC were there. I think they were covering it for a few games at the time. Um, and there were lots of other you know, German TV there. But I think we were second in line to, to get those guys. And uh, yeah, no, there, there was never any, any doubt. Uh, from our point of view, that we weren't going to get the principles on that particular day because it was such a momentous day, and, and, and everybody in the team knew it. They knew that we'd be around with uh, our camera and our microphone. They knew that. But I think, from a personal point of view, well, you know, it's difficult to assess your own performance. You know, but in fact, some uh, journalists, I think it was in the Independent, uh, mentioned uh, the TV coverage on RT on that particular day and did a sort of small comparison to uh, BBC at the time and uh, sort of uh, commented on how we got the calls right during that big incident. So I suppose it did receive uh, some complimentary words in the media at the time, which, which was nice, I suppose, from a personal point of view. But I'm sure there were other races. Kev, you know, when you're broadcasting, there's some things you come away from and you think, yeah, I think that went well. I think we got the calls right. So I think, and then other times you come away thinking, you know, it didn't quite work out. And sometimes the quality of the event dictates your, your broadcast and there's nothing you can do about it. If an event is poor, there's very little you can do to dress it up to make it more interesting. Obviously, when an event is exciting and there's a lot going on, well, you kind of, you get into a, a nice rhythm and you get into a good flow and it's probably a more successful broadcast. So but sometimes it's hard to assess and sometimes you do have to sit down after the fact and go through it and listen to it and think, oh, right. And, and very often, you're, you're kind of surprised, you know, you kind of, oh yeah, it actually went better than I thought, you know, because you'll always come away from a, a long broadcast thinking, well, maybe if I had a chance to do that again, I might do it a little differently. But I mean, you're always your own biggest critic, aren't you? I mean, that's the thing in, in, in any business, you know, if you're assessing, trying to do an assessment of how you're performing, you're, you're more inclined to fall on the critical side and you look to other people really to do the assessment for you. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, you do 100 things, you do 99 right, and you always remember the wrong thing. That's just who we are by nature. I'm, I'm laughing, Peter, because, yeah. you know, the reason I kind of asked that question about the accessibility afterwards and memory of, you know, muscle memory of being there when things aren't as prominent for, for Jordan, that it's great that you still kind of got that. Because I went up to, uh, just a quick side story, I went up to Crow Park in 2018. I'm from Carlo. We don't get to Crow Park that often. We played Leash in the Leinster yeah. semi-final. And obviously lost by a couple of points. And maybe way around on the Cusick stand side. And I just had the car dressing room. And Carlock O'Brien obviously gone very well with him. And he kind of spotted me. And he actually came out and uh, did the interview. And next thing I got a little tap on the shoulder from the uh, Crow Park PR person saying that uh, your good sales were to get the, the first interview. And uh, what do you call it? The, the exchange. Yeah, I didn't take too kindly to it. I was like, well, that's funny. I didn't see you up in... Uh, Carrigan Shannon there in February and I was getting pissed down on a Division 4 game. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you know the way these things work like and uh, how things could uh, could change when um when there's success and, and different things. But I'm great and delighted to hear that, you know, that was the that was the case. And I wouldn't expect anything less either from oh, from Eddie, you know. Eddie Jordan was, was fantastic, you know, and uh, I don't know, I don't enjoyed that the coverage as well you know because Eddie, Eddie's a bit rock and roll and he, he didn't mind the profile and all that sort of stuff but but genuinely he was always a, a pleasure to deal with and uh, never really caused us any difficulty because obviously as the Irish broadcaster there we wanted the Irish story and that, that was our obligation to deliver that story to the Irish public Mm -hmm. Peter you've been excellent with your time and promised I won't take up too much more of it and sorry about the technical difficulties that we may have had in getting set up as well but uh, a couple of little things before we finish up so we have a couple of messages in from our uh, our listeners which I'll get to in a moment's time but um, sort of um, I won't say left wing questions but uh, questions that maybe wouldn't come up ordinarily the team tune music Firestarter and right here, right now. I mean, they're iconic tunes. They're iconic of its time and still iconic to this day. And a lot of people would associate that with the F1 coverage in RT as well. And yeah. to be honest with you, like, you'd still get goosebumps over that. I mean, it was such a great choice of music uh, that really encapsulated what the sport was about in terms of energy and everything. Um, when you hear those songs, th does it remind you of that time as well? Yeah, it does. I think the Formula One program is about to begin <laughs> every time I hear it. Back, you know, and we're going on air, you know. Well, not, not really, but yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, that, that music is the other great passion in my life, along, along with sports. So, uh, luckily, I was able to influence the, the choice of uh, music for our, our Formula One coverage, you know, and they are two particularly good tunes. Uh, they were, I mean, they were very contemporary at the time, and sometimes 
contemporary music doesn't stand the test of time, you know, because a lot of music dates as we move into different eras and different genres take over. But I think both those tunes kind of stand up even today. I mean, if they're played today on the radio, they wouldn't be out of place with anything else that's happening, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, as we said, we're kind of going into quickfire mode here now with these questions, but um, frostiness with, with drivers or maybe teams down through the years, did you experience most, um, you know, much of that? And in terms of friendships or relationships that you build up with drivers, teams or broadcasters, uh, have they stood the test of time? Um, with uh, a couple of broadcasters, yes. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, you're on the road together for that period of time and you're going to strike up uh, friendships and relationships along the way. And uh, I remember in particular, the Dutch broadcasters were particularly helpful to us because we had an enormous amount of gear traveling at that particular time. And when you're hawking this gear around from airport to airport and hotel to hotel, it's, uh, you know, it's uh, pretty arduous at times. And our friends from, I think they were uh, RTL, the Netherlands, um, they, uh, when we were in Europe, they used take that gear for us on their old truck. And I mean, they offered, we didn't, we didn't actually request it. So I thought, well, that's pretty decent. So I hope that a uh, great time for the just ever since because they, they saved our backs an awful lot uh, during that time. And uh, also when it came to rigging our equipment, their uh, their technician, Patrick, uh, coincidentally, he has an Irish uh, Christian name, but uh, Patrick was always very helpful because uh, you're always encountering technical difficulties with transmission and reception for picking uh, stuff and that. So, yeah, I mean, we had, uh, and also we got on extremely well with our, our British counterparts. And uh, on, on many, many race days, I remember Murray Walker and myself used to have a brief chat, and he used to probe me as to what was happening in Jordan team because he felt we had a little bit of an inside line because of the Irish connection. And uh, very often I would get a couple of nuggets from Murray, and, and he was an absolute gentleman because here was a legend of broadcasting. I mean, he was as big as any sort of driver around the paddock Murray Walker was. And I used to always be extremely uh, complimented by the fact that Murray would come and ask me about Jordan and we'd have a little chat just before the race broadcast and then we'd go into our respective booths and off we went, you know. In terms of drivers, uh, not really, you know. Um, I, I was I got to know Ralph Furman, uh, who drove for Jordan. Uh, I got, got to know him particularly well because we knew him kind of before he got the drive and so we were delighted for him that that happened and he did have an Irish passport which uh, which, was, which was pleasing from our point of view uh, I mean his tenure at Jordan didn't last that long but Ralph, Ralph was a very nice fellow a gentleman really and um, Ruben Barrichello as well of the Brazilian drivers got to know Ruben extremely well Giancarlo Fisichella who was I always felt he was one of the most talented drivers Jordan ever had behind the wheel mm -hmm. and uh, he you know, we, we got to know Giancarlo pretty well as well. And uh, we had a kind of uh, a difficult relationship with Eddie Irvine. Uh, and I really don't know why, you know, because, I mean, he started his career, uh, his Formula One career with Jordan and uh, moved on then to uh, Ferrari and Jaguar and all that. But uh, sometimes while Eddie Jordan has always made himself available, <laughs> the same could be said about Eddie Irvine. Eddie uh, at times could be a tricky customer when it came to dealing with the media. And we were never quite sure why that was. You know, we thought that possibly uh, because we were from the island of Ireland, that we'd be sort of, uh, you know, somebody that he might, or, uh, you know, a broadcaster he might graduate to. But he, he didn't. And that was just a matter of fact, you know. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh... Seemed to live a lavish lifestyle afterwards as well, and uh, I don't think he's doing too bad by the by the sounds of things. So yeah, interesting character for sure, Peter. Um, so like in terms of where we're at now with with F one, you uh, you obviously have the finger on the pulse. Obviously with work, maybe you get caught, and you know, but would you sit down maybe if you can't get to see it live and uh, and sit down and watch the whole race afterwards? Yeah, I mean, uh, it is fortunate that uh, I mean the Channel Four don't cover every race uh, but, but they do carry highlights and if, if I missed on today which can be the case because I'm committed to uh, uh, stuff we're doing ourselves here you know um, yeah I'll always sit down and watch it and uh, if not in its entirety you know I'll, I'll watch watch the highlights form but uh, yeah no I like to I like to keep a close eye on it uh, because uh, like my, my daughter runs a Formula 1 website as well and generated through her own interest I mean I, I don't think really it was inspired by my involvement in it just in more recent years, she got uh, heavily into it and uh, set up the Straight to the Grid website. 
which is which is still going, you know. So uh, you know, I give her a hand out on that as well. So I like to keep a close eye on what's going on. I'm not too sure, uh, Kevin, how competitive this season is going to be <laughs> the way that it starts off. But you do hope that maybe Aston Martin will will become the the main challenger to uh, to Red Bull, who started the season so strongly, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm delighted you actually mentioned the website too. I thought you were going to forget for a second. <laughs> I was going to say, make make sure you get that you get that plug in. Uh, so uh, good yeah. stuff, and that's 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 remarkable to hear as well that the interest has come off rolling back kind of and uh, nice nice commonality to have as well in the household yeah. out. So the listeners' questions then. So uh, first one up comes from Aidan Lenny. Hey, Irish F1 show. Grew up watching F1 with Peter Collins. Definitely one of the most underrated commentators out there. My question is, when RT lost rights to F1, did you get any offers to do it on another TV broadcaster, etc., etc.? Uh, did Satanta Sports offer you a chance? So the first thing I'll actually add in there, did RT actually lose the rights or choose not to uh, uptake the rights? And then you obviously went to MotoGP afterwards. And so I'll, I'll just put in those two things there in line with Aidan's question. Yeah, well, uh, well, very kind of Aidan to say that. Uh... I appreciate that comment, but um, well, I think what happened at the time, um, yeah, it was a case that Satanta went, they wanted a Blue Riband uh, product to kick off their station. They couldn't get the Premier League, so they went for Formula One. And I think it was a case, yeah, they, they outdated RT. And, uh, and that was you know, all fair and love and war. That's just the way it was. And uh, But at that time, I mean, I felt, you know, from uh, RTE's point of view, that uh, maybe the, the interest was waning a little bit and that they may not have been as enthusiastic as, as previous seasons. Uh, but they did bid, you know, so that probably blows uh, that theory out the water. They did bid first, but were outbid by Satanta. And yes, uh, Satanta then did come to me and ask me, would I front the coverage and would I take over the production for them but I but once I realised RTE was uh, losing Formula 1 I had also developed a keen interest in MotoGP and I'd been to a number of uh, motorcycle Grand Prix and I thought this product's amazing you know it's every bit every bit is exciting every bit as good as F1 as far as I was concerned and so I led uh, RTE down the road of uh, for uh, a MotoGP deal and so by the time Satanta came to me sort of we had committed to MotoGP for three years at that particular point. And, uh, you know, I was excited by, you know, that new product, uh, definitely excited by the racing and the characters involved, you know, the likes of, uh, you know, Valentino Rossi and Loris Caparossi and people like that. So really interesting, great sportsmen, you know, hugely skilled at what they do. And I thought, well, you know, and the travel as well wasn't going to be as punishing as the Formula One travel. So when, when I added everything up really, uh, I thought, right, I've done 10 years in Formula One. Could I do another 10 years? I thought, probably not, you know, because it was extremely taxing, uh, the travel uh, and that level of commitment. And I thought uh, something fresh like MotoGP would be just what the doctor ordered. So as opposed to heading off to Satanta <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. and the big money, I decided to stick with RTE and go the MotoGP route because it was also going to allow me to continue uh, cover football, you know, which uh, which is equally a passion of mine as well you know mm-hmm. the second question there was did the uh, Paddock atmosphere differ much for in the MotoGP side of things in comparison to the F1 yes it did uh, the the access to the principles involved you know uh, the riders was uh, far uh, easier I would say than it was in Formula 1 you know the uh, the MotoGP riders, uh, I suppose they weren't as uh, precious, and maybe maybe because the demands of them aren't as great, but they're, they're almost as great. I mean, the, the traveling circus uh, with MotoGP is, is probably just as big as Formula One, you know, and, you know, the, the race attendances are, are, in some cases, will be even greater, you know, in, particularly in the countries that, that absolutely live for us, but, I mean, Spain. Uh, absolutely idolizes everything MotoGP and uh, Grand Prix bike racing, you know. Uh, Italy possibly to a lesser extent, but it's big in France as well. It's, it's, it's very big in Germany. You know, and those races would have massive attendances at the end of season race in Valencia over the weekend would have in the region of, you know, 400, 500,000 people coming through the turnstiles at those circuits. So, um, so, you know, uh, but, but the paddock probably, I, I would say the paddock in MotoGP was more enjoyable to work in. The pressures didn't seem as great, you know, because access was a little bit easier with the riders. You got to the stories a little bit easier. 
and there were some, you know, Irish guys involved on the technical side of things as well. So we had good access to information and to garages. So you got in there on the bikes, you know, and you got in to talk to mechanics and tire people. So uh, yeah, probably all in all, from a, a working point of view, uh, it was uh, probably a little bit more enjoyable in the end than Formula One because. The pressure in Formula One to, to get the story was, was massive and access was difficult. And also the, the racing in bike racing generally anyway is, is a whole lot closer than the car racing because you don't have the, the huge aerodynamics involved. So the spikes are always running very close and the, you know, there's lots of overtaking. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a product that I would always uh, sort of uh, promote uh, from a racing point of view. Great to watch. Great characters involved, and uh, yeah, thoroughly enjoyed our time in, in MotoGP. Good stuff. Very last question. This comes from me, not from a listener. Um, Rally Ireland. We obviously present the Irish Rally podcast as well. You did the final stage. I think it was Rally Ireland on nine. Um, how how much fun was that, and how cool was it for Ireland to have a WRC round? Well, uh, wow, uh, that was a particularly busy time for me because not only was I trying to do uh, commentary on, on the on the stages and all that, but also I, I was the, the program editor. So, um, oh wow, I didn't realise that actually. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was very, very demanding. I remember at the time, you know, when when we finished that particular week, uh, being absolutely exhausted because it was like uh, morning to dusk, you know, and, and onwards. And I think, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, we were producing two, possibly three programs a day on the World Rally. And because we were the host broadcaster, you know, there was, there was a huge amount to do. But in fairness, everybody involved in this worked extremely hard and and again uh, the, the drivers in particular uh, when it came to access were extremely patient and extremely cooperative because you know you needed you needed their uh, input to really sort of flesh out your programs and make it worthwhile for the viewers to tune in you know because uh, there were as, as you know some significant drivers involved at the time like like Loeb you know the world champion and uh, you know to get access to those guys was fantastic so uh, it was it was hard work for the time it was here but yeah again it was another really enjoyable and a very different experience you know because as you know the way rally operates is very very different from circuit racing but again uh yeah you know we, we, we had a, a good time doing it and it's just pity it hasn't been back since mm-hmm. well look here's hoping there is talks of um of northern Ireland maybe hosting something and there has been for some time it didn't work out last year uh but uh who knows what might happen in future peter i really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much for coming on the Irish F1 show, and uh, you know what? I don't know if we're ever going to see the like of it again. I don't think we will. Um, we possibly may never see F1 on RT again. Uh, hopefully, we will, but I, I would say it's probably unlikely. And I know you're not here to speculate on that. But regardless of all of that, all I can do is say thanks for being the voice of many people's childhoods in terms of F1. You continue to be the voice of uh, of sport on RT, and we are so delighted to say that we're after having you here on the Irish F1 show. So thanks a million for coming on with us. All right. No, it's all, Kevin. It's been an absolute pleasure, and it was uh, it was an enjoyable experience for me. But um, <laughs> I don't do it too often, to be honest, because we're always, we're always looking towards the next event. But uh, no, I certainly enjoyed it, and I'm